Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, you can now support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Backers get lots of benefits, including an ad-free version of the podcasts, attractive mugs and t-shirts, and access to our exciting archive of live streams. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast and find out how you can keep us in rude health. Increasingly, we're living permanently in virtual worlds at the moment, not just for work meetings, but also for entertainment. You might turn off the video conference and then relax with a game or TV show on the very same screen you were just working on. Video games themselves are shaping the world as seldom before, not least because it feels like we live in one right now. I'm not a gamer myself, but I'm fascinated by what they mean, how they work, and the hold they have, not just on kids who won't get off Minecraft and eat their dinner, or in my case, my son's Lego video games, which never seem to end. Our guest today is Ed Stern, who's a narrative designer and games writer for Splash Damage, so he's extremely skilled at creating virtual worlds. I'll be talking to him about what video games can teach us about our strange new world. Hello, Ed. Hi there, Roz. Uh, thanks for having me on. Can I just ask, is, is the plan to just interview all of your listeners one by one? Is this the high-tier Patreon reward? <laughs> you have you have cracked our master plan, Ed, but you must not release this information into the general environment. <laughs> oh, sorry. Was that, was that back, backstage at the Sausage Puppet Theatre? factory your job is to write the stories for video games when you're not listening to the bunker so you're like a director and scriptwriter rolled into one really tell us about a couple of the games you've heard on uh, you've you've worked on that i might have heard of uh, that you might have heard of none um uh no okay I, I worked well, tell, on us, the... tell me about a couple of games you've worked on then <laughs> okay well I, I worked on the enemy territory games uh brink the multiplayer bit of the last but one Batman Batman Arkham game, uh, Dirty Bomb. I was homeopathically faintly involved in the Gears Tactics game that just came out. As you can tell by the titles, these are not Jane Austen games. They are generally shooty bang games, to use the technical term. So I am the script writer for the school play. Hopefully nobody laughs for the wrong reasons. And if the fencing team want there to be a sword fight, there is going to be a sword fight. As many as they need, in fact. I write in-house fan fiction for online cosplay paintball. Take that, Milton. Oh my God, that's that's just such a modern job, isn't it? I mean, that imagine if you used that job description on someone twenty years ago, and they would have been like, "What?" <laughs> so you're kind of you create a lot of characters in these virtual worlds. Which is the character you're most pleased to have created? Tell us about him, or indeed her, as it might be them they um well i mean as you said in your intro i mean I, I i i'm the perfect guide to the new lockdown normal because reality right now is is really badly written the characters are cliched the plot is contrived and frankly dull it's not clear how much time is actually passing uh 
everyone looks weird and badly animated and tries to give you quests. Uh, you have very few actions available to you. You're generally stuck in one location until you solve a big problem and you're jealously hoarding <laughs> supplies and health. So you're all in my world now. <laughs> uh, games writers, we, we have been toiling in the uncanny valley for decades now and you've only just been kind of forcibly relocated here. It's okay. You'll have a good life here, I swear. But I, I will be your guide. So what makes a truly compelling video game work? Is there a kind of special source that elevates the really important ones from the rest? Well, if we knew that, we'd only do them. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a good question. I think, like obscenity or a coherent COVID exit strategy, you know it when you see it. <laughs> you know, if we knew what made things good, we'd only make good things. Uh, for me, it's something to do with coherence and balance. And that either requires a very small focus team or an absolutely colossal one with a dictator in charge of it. Uh, Tina Fey, uh, the uh, um, actor and performer and, and producer and writer who did 30 Rock, she's got a great section in her book, uh, uh, which is titled, uh, the, the section is called Things I Learned from Lorne Michaels, who's the longtime producer of Saturday Night Live, where she worked. And one of the mottos is, producing is about discouraging creativity. <laughs> uh, mostly your job is to police enthusiasm. Because if all the different departments, you know, whether it's props or, you know, lighting or in computer games terms, like the concept art or the animators or the, the gameplay systems, if they all just go out and do their speciality the best they can, you end up with just a bucket of assets and systems that aren't very coherent. There's the, the, um, it makes me think of that old joke about the Oscars. They're not being for they're not for best acting, best directing, best costume, and so on. They're they're for the most acting, the most directing, and the most costume. So I think really good games of any size, they don't feel like the most animations, the most game art, the most enemies, the most audio. They feel they just feel right. They feel authored and intended. Um, whether they're just tiny handcrafted things or massive, you know, triple A as they're called, kind of Hollywood budget productions. I think there's just that kind of sniff of quality. I, th I think both for developers and for players as well, you can just kind of tell when it works. And why do you think dystopias are so central to gaming? We were talking yesterday on the bunker about preppers and how they hadn't, they weren't getting what they hoped and expected out of <laughs> out of disaster. You know, they were hoping to be free and you know str uh, strolling manfully across Utah with a with a you know AK forty seven, and it isn't like that. <laughs> it's not at all what the they ex expected. Yeah, but why are there so many post nuclear or post epidemic worlds in the scenarios of video games? Do you think? Are you asking me where I get my idea? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, my idea is, well, honestly, a lot of it's down to technical and ethical constraints. And what a game's good at, I mean, for, for the high-end AAA games made in the professional studio system where I work, uh, very high production values, very gr detailed graphics, that sort of thing. Technology's really good at rendering environments. And if you make very graphically detailed games, nearly photorealistic games, as Splash Damage does... It's very hard to depict convincing human beings with that level of detail who can instantly react to completely random player actions. Like, it's one thing to just draw... It's sort of like, um, oh, Lord, the uh, nude variety performances during the war, where, you know, the, you're allowed to be nude, but you couldn't move. Like, as long as, as long as no one moves and the player doesn't do anything, we can what? draw things beautifully. 
I'm sorry, I've never heard of these Nude Variety Act performances during the war, the Second um, World War. Yes, at the Windmill Theatre. But I mean, basically, with games, we've got all the drawbacks of CG and animation, and we let the player control the camera and instigate actions whenever they want. Like, you know, it, it's every, every drawback to making a big, beautiful animated movie, and we're going to let the player have control over everything. So this is not a blueprint for subtlety or, co- or coherence. You know, it, it's generally broad strokes uh, with a big genre brush. But also, I mean, that's the tech constraint. The ethical constraint is, as an industry, we don't actually like our players to shoot innocent civilians. So <laughs> for both reasons, we are biased in favour of abandoned or at least unpopulated environments, things we can draw really well that don't have civilians in them. And some sort of apocalyptic, apocalyptic cataclysm is a good explainer for that. So we tend towards B-movie dystopia. Ruins with things going bang. As an industry, that is our idea. That's our sweet spot. Okay, that, that is fascinating because that never occurred to me. I always assumed that you wanted to kill as many people as possible. And, and uh, No, but it's interesting that that's the motivation behind it. Do you think we will still want to fight our way through post-pandemic worlds when we can, when we can do that but for free by going to Tesco? <laughs> it's- um there, there's more to games than fighting through post-pandemic dystopias Ros. there has to be I need, I need my medium to give me more than that to go on uh and it is a medium of course because it's neither rare nor well done as the joke goes it's a, yeah I, I i pretend it's a joke it makes me cry <laughs> so i'm i'm a total you know this ed because you know me i'm a total video games novice who's never played anything more complicated than monument valley i have to say and that was some years ago i did have a go at grand theft auto about a decade ago and i i loved it because i just loved running around getting into cars stealing them partly because i can't even drive myself i haven't even got a license so the sense of freedom was just amazing and i you know committing traffic offenses brilliant the trouble was i then got a migraine so i had to stop but you know, where should some someone like me begin these days? Because I understand that Grand Theft Auto is now, you know, pretty much old hat. Um, where should where should where should I start if I were to to want to get into video games? There are so many kinds of games. I think the important thing is there's there's no right games and there's no right way to play them. There's there are big Hollywood blockbuster games. There are tiny hipster indie games. There are puzzle games, reaction tests, tactical problem solvers abstract art games, interactive fiction, single-player, co-op, cooperative games, competitive multiplayer games, all, all kinds of everything. I mean, you know, they're generally entertainment. I, I'm very happy working as an, as in an entertainment medium rather than an art form. I think games can be that too, um, probably about as often as books or films are, because statistically most books are Barbara Cartland and most films are bad westerns. So <laughs> I don't see what, what's so special about that. Um, do you know that book, uh, uh, Me Cheetah? the was it yeah uh, where which is the kind of a, a fake showbiz tell-all biography of um uh Tarzan. i think you actually bought it for me actually, oh really some, that's some years ago. it was um, <laughs> it was a present yeah oh uh, there's there's a great gag in there about he's talking about you know being being a chimpanzee and he says sure fine okay we know no chimpanzee is type the complete works of william shakespeare but there are millions of you and you've had thousands of years. And how many of you have written the complete works of Shakespeare? One. One. <laughs> so I kind of feel like that about games. It's like, well, yeah, look at the other stuff. <laughs> Give us time. Give us time. We'll work on Portrait of a Lady. <laughs> um, so I'd have but, to decide what kind of game I wanted. Yes, before. but I have, I, I have a means for, I, I have a, a way in for that. 
Um, but before any further, uh, go any further, can I implore your listeners to go and, and look for a thing? If you search online for GDC Vault Train Brenda Brathwaite, uh, it's a conference, it's a video of a conference talk about a game unlike anything they'll have played. It's one of the most moving and compelling talks I've seen about anything. It just happens to be about what games can be, what subjects they can actually meaningfully invoke or explore. I don't want to I don't want to spoil it. It is a shocking, brilliant, extraordinary, very, very moving talk. Most games are not like that. Most games are not Brenda Brathwaite's train, but I, I'd really, I'd love people, more people to know about it because that's what the medium is capable of. It hardly ever does it, but that, that's what can be done. So I'm assuming you've already got a smartphone or a laptop and that's all you need. You do not need a dedicated console like a PlayStation or an Xbox or a Switch. You don't need to use those double thumbstick controllers because those really do take a while to master. Um, a lot of thought goes in. I mean, I can I can recommend an enormous list of games, and there's no difficulty finding stuff like that. Um, but a lot of thought goes into um, di- what people want from games, and uh, a lot of people don't self-define as a gamer. But it turns out they play a lot of games, or they play the same game a lot. Thank you, Solitaire, or indeed Minesweeper for that matter, uh, which are still banging games. They're they're, they're hard to improve on. I think one of the big things in the industry is I mean, we use a, a games analytics con- consultancy called Quantic Foundry. They do audience surveys, they build up the, uh, market profiles, and they categorize player motivations. So a lot of work goes into what what itches people want scratched. And one aspect I think people are leaning on a lot at the moment is predictable rewarded progress, because that's something we're not getting a huge amount of in real life. So... You know, they've got, they've got their little matrix of you know, There's action games, which is about destruction and excitement. Social games, if you're into competition and community. There's mastery, which involves challenge and strategy. Achievements, about completion and power. Immersion, which is about fantasy and story. And creativity, which is about design and discovery. And if you if you go to Quantic Foundry and take their gamer motivation profile survey, they will recommend games to you. They'll say, all right, you're interested in this kind of thing. Here's a game that will that ticks all of those boxes. Because I, I think people have lots of different motivations, and for a lot of them, some of them just aren't the, the traditional ways they got those those uh, uh, needs met are no longer available. For some people, nothing has changed. <laughs> this is they were already doing what they want to be doing, and they didn't need to be doing it offline in in the real world. I feel very lucky to work in an industry where I can feasibly carry on working from home. Uh, I have a lot of friends who work in live performance or hospitality or music or theatre or dance or comedy, and they are in real trouble. It's interesting to see, for example, sports. It's very, you know, There are very few sports you can still play other than esports, other than com- competitive computer games. It's been a, 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 an edu- horrible education for me to realise I don't really like football that much. I like listening to people talk about it. And it turns out you don't need real football games to do that. So the number of football podcasts where they're, they've all agreed to watch the same old game on YouTube, or they're playing Football Manager. Gonna, hang on, we can procedurally generate games for you. We can create sporting events. It turns out one of the main things I love about cricket is the commentary, and they can just make a computer game make stuff happen. You don't need real people. And with cricket, there's, there's that old joke. I've heard it said about baseball as well, is that at the point when it was invented... 
there wasn't anything else to do. These people would have been standing in a field anyway. <laughs> you might as well give them something to, something to do involving objects and hitting. Um, so if whatever you want, whatever you already know you enjoy, there is a game and there's a game genre that you can pick up quite easily. Um, there might be stuff you didn't realize you were into. I mean, th- for example, there's a, been a lot of surveys about uh, who actually plays games. And it's a very gendered, or rather, it's not a gendered thing. That's the baffling thing. There was a big survey in uh, September 2019. It was uh, about 2,000 players, uh, so 2,000 people, sorry. Uh, this was in the UK. 86% of them, aged 16 to 99, had played a computer or mobile game in the last year. More than half of them had played a game most days that that year. The gender split was absolutely even. But 58% of regular men players identified gaming as a hobby, and only 33% of women regular players did. So men think of themselves as hobbyist fanatic enthusiast gamers women just play the games and don't think of it as a an ide- a part of their identity in the same way so i was going to say to you that games are not thought to be something that women play a lot but it turns out that actually women do play them a lot but are they playing you know different kinds of games fundamentally it looks like it it's i, I do wonder about this data because um i'm not quite sure what we're measuring are we measuring games that women want to play or are they parents and or carers and this these are the games they can fit in around everything else so of women gamers only 61 percent were under 45 so you know over half were under 45 but not a lot on uh, uh, over half 88 percent of the women played on a smartphone 45 percent played on a console and 44 percent played on a laptop so you know, it's not all casual games. There's a lot of casual games. 54% of um, women's favorite games were puzzle or tile matching, which is not arguably the most hardcore games genre. But of the other game genres, it was about equal. Um, I think it's more that there's a mental split between casual games and proper games, quote unquote. And from the games industry's point of view, of course, the money's the same no matter who's who, who's uh, uh, paying it. And also women's reasons for playing weren't much different to men, which is interesting. It was still primarily about relaxation and entertainment. Um, But in terms of the games they did play, yes, 54% of regular gamers identifying as women said a favorite genre was puzzle or tile matching. For men, that's just 26%. Uh, 28% of women in the survey uh, said that one of their favorite games was traditional board game adaptations or like solitaire, like a, a sort of classic game. And men tend to not list that as a favourite genre at all. I'm not sure if they think of them as games in the same way. 27% said social simulation games. Of women, this is. 22% said sandbox, sandbox or world-building games like Minecraft. 21% said arcade classics, which are games they're not supposed to be know about or play. And 21% said role-playing action games. And for men, you know, it's 33%, which is a bit more, but not lots. I think the big difference is that Men tended to list favourite genres like first-person shooters or sports games, and that's not so much the case. So it's not absolutely the, the gender split isn't equal across all, all the genres, but vastly more even than most people think. So, do you think people are finding it therapeutic to immerse themselves in virtual worlds during lockdown? I mean, 
you say a lot of women in particular tend to play puzzle games and often you see people doing that on the commute, for example, which most of us have not been doing anymore. Is it escapism at the moment that they're going for? Is it your sense that that's what's popular? Escapism isn't always a bad thing. Uh, It depends what you're escaping from. And one aspect of this whole pandemic nightmare um, is it's really showing, I mean, it's really showing up the lip service we as a society and economy were paying to accessibility. You know, it really shows up how many jobs could have been done remotely the whole time. So physically handicapped people or chronically ill people have been in lockdown for a lot longer than this pandemic. Um, And I think we can learn from them. My employer, Smash Damage, we work with an excellent charity called Special Effect, um, which sorts out games and custom controllers for people uh, of all ages with physical challenges, whether that's disability or injury or illness, um, you know, whether in a hospital or rehab center or their home. And a game that lets you fly when you can't walk is quite a big deal. You know, that's different from, oh, I'll just play a, a, a cow clicking game as they, you know, it's one of those casual Facebook things. That's a sort of existentially redefining game. And I think without making, you know, vast claims for games as a medium beyond anything else, I mean, I'm now reading fiction in a way that I wasn't before. I am finding the escapism of fiction nourishing in a way that it wasn't before because i got to do lots of other things and now my list of actions is much more circumscribed and my list of locations is much more circumscribed i like going to other places imaginatively so i think now more than ever we should be playing games i think now more than ever we should think about who has access to entertainment and who has the time leisure and money to do so it's fascinating. I, I mean, this is all a, a massive subset of the, the general theme, which is it, it may be the same storm, but we're clearly not weathering it in the same, in the same boats. Um, and some boats are much more comfortable than others. Yeah, absolutely. This is a point I keep banging on about until people I think get, get a bit bored, that it's just we're not all in this together at all. That's a convenient fiction. It kind of maybe might help some of us get through it, but it's not, it's not actually true. Um, what do you think about you know the fantasies people have? It's been interesting to me to see people as they start experimenting with Zoom and um, other vid- video um, apps when they start creating virtual backgrounds themselves. And the BBC actually produced uh, produced a whole series of virtual backgrounds where you could put yourself in the TARDIS or in various sci-fi programs or even in Grange Hill, and this this customization you know it's sort of how how do you there's, there's even a twitter account that rates famous people's rooms and so we're, we're trying to be better versions of ourselves because we've got less to work with in terms of expressing our personality we have to do it all through the screen and women are very used to doing that i think um you know do one mm. of the things john berger in ways of seeing said he said men look at women women watch themselves being looked at and in a virtual environment that is completely turned upside down and we can look at men as much as we like. Um, it's very liberating in a way. Although the trouble is, my gaze keeps flitting back to myself, you know, because so, I'm so used to arranging my my face. But is there a way in which which video games can help us negotiate that awkwardness and the awkwardness a lot of us are feeling at the moment, having to do so much work online, or is it anonymity a key part of what they are and a, 
a key a key hmm. secret to their appeal well g- games are very rarely anonymous they're pseudonymous you don't you don't get to be nobody you get to be a specific someone else and that's part of their their joy uh, and for some people that is liberating and vital and for other it's a, it's a horrible imposition and they lose their hard won uh, status and agency or very easily inherited effortlessly inherited and assumed privileged status and agency i mean this I, I i don't mean to preen but this is exactly where games have been for so long is we're just stuck with this awkward medium shot of a kind of uncanny valley-ish face it's like, see how you like it now i think there are some things we can learn from games so i mean in in, in terms of narrative design and games writing there's a lot of things we try and think of in terms of, you know, oh, is this going to be a cinematic or a cutscene? Is, is this going to be uh, motion captured or performance captured? Or is, is it going to be a, st- a static image or a 3D image or a 2D image? Um, and now we're kind of all stuck. In some ways, it's been very democratizing, although it is deeply gendered. I, I, it's so weird. You know, there's so many women that I know or have seen online um, saying, oh, my God, I've just... I just find myself dressing comfortably and practically and not wearing makeup and just not really worrying about my hair. And so many straight men just going, and? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, that's a thing. Um, So, you know, given that we are all now in this slightly medium, in an awkward medium shot, I, I, I think there's some things we can learn from games. I think we've got some things we need to go a lot further back. Um, I think we need to reintroduce ostentatious status jewelry in shots like a holbein painting <laughs> you want you need to show off them rings <laughs> that, that to show to how important you are uh, i think you should dress up specifically for zoom meetings it's all about like it seriously lighting is the most important thing um just just always have always be looking into the light if you can't quite see anything that's fine if you're dazzled you probably look great but um yeah, this is absolutely hacky games writing 101. You want uh, a defining character prop, maybe a personality tie, an obscene coffee mug motto, something like that. You know, broad strokes. Um, I think uh, I, there's a, a functionality I want added to Zoom, which is that once per conversation you press a button and it does a massive crash close-up Zoom into your face to, to indicate you've got a major reaction. Um, I think we need to go past games, though. I need to we go back to Victorian drama and music hall and kind of uh, dramatic recitative. Uh, I think you need to indicate in real time. Don't use an emoji. Don't outsource that stuff. Do it yourself. Clutch the hairs at the side of your temples. Uh, uh, place the back of your hand to your forehead. We need to develop these kind of, um, what were they, attitudes, ritual kind of um, rhetorical uh, hand gestures. I think we're going to go back. We're going to all look going to look like Roman tapestries, not the Roman tapestries, medieval tapestries. Don't just metaphorically raise a hand, literally raise a hand like some sort of medieval statuary. This is definitely the way forward. Excellent. Excellent advice. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Listeners, there's another Bunker Daily tomorrow. And don't forget to catch up with our live streams. If you are a Patreon backer, search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor, produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.